Good evening. Okay, so you'll see there's two sets of notes. We are actually picking up right where we left off last week, which is the bottom of page 20. So you can find that in one of the sets of notes that you have. If you don't have notes, there's more up here. What I have on the overhead is I want to just reorient you to where we're at, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll jump right into continuing looking at God's Word this evening. So what we've been doing is we are looking at what it means to be Imago Christi, image of Christ. If you're a Christian, that is what God is up to in our lives. He is forming us into the image of Jesus, and that means a lot of things. And so where we're, we are at is we are deeply embedded in point number four, to be created in the image of God includes being gendered. Come on in, ladies. Hey, Porter, in addition to running the mic, can you run uh, notes? And then if people, don't, if people need notes, so there's, there's no new notes, it's the same notes from last week. Do any of you ladies need, need notes from last week? You do? You do? Okay. So there's a whole other set in my office in the printer. And then uh, you can ask Jeff, and he'll show you how to make copies. It's very fancy. Okay, who wants? Those ones. Okay, more, more are coming. You got it. Okay, so if you're just getting here and you were not here last week, if you don't have last week's notes, raise your hand. Just need to get a head count. Last week's notes. One, two, three, four. Last week's notes. You do have them. Okay. Five sets of notes. Jacob. Six sets of notes because he lost his. So it's being recorded. Uh, just a recommendation. I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I recommend that you get a binder and you can put your notes in a binder. Okay, so to be created in the image of God includes being gendered, and we have been walking through uh, this, this part, and so we, we ventured into the topic of marriage, and that's where we are um, as we move through talking about being embodied and more. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to begin on the top of page 19, or in your Bibles, either place, Genesis 2. I'm going to reread scripture where we ended last week to give us a running start for this week. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, this evening we're going to think about your word. We, we pray that you would magnify Jesus in this place and in our hearts. Lord, we, um, some of us, many of us may desire to get married one day. Maybe some of us lament being in a difficult marriage. Maybe some of us lament having lost marriage. And we live in a culture that has no definition of marriage other than what someone feels like. But Lord, you are wise, right, and true. You have invented marriage for specific purposes. So we pray that you would give us your mind this evening, that we'd rejoice in the wonder and mystery and majesty of your created order. And in doing so, Lord, we wouldn't be tricked or seduced or succumbed to the lies of the world but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds with your word. So to that end, Lord, we need your spirit to do all of that for us and to 
again, magnify Jesus in this place. In whose name we pray, amen. All right, Genesis 2, top of page 19. Here's a section. I'm going to go ahead and read it to us, beginning of verse 18. And we are asking a larger question, and it's this. What is marriage? What is it for? What are the effects of sin on marriage? And what are the effects of gospel, of the gospel on marriage? And that actually, that what I just said is on the beginning of page 18, if you have that in your notes. So we're in this drop-down drop down menu of all the things that God could have done. Why did he invent marriage? And um, you can review your notes, how we talked about last week, that he didn't create anything else other than one man, one woman. Anyways, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man, and by the way in Hebrew, the man is just simply Adam. It's Adam. Do you have notes there? Okay, great, thank you. So everybody turn around and look at Porter. That's what he looks like. So when you hear him come back in, just raise your hand so he can just bring you, bring you the notes. Thank you, everybody. When we're reading here in Genesis 2, everywhere it says the man. In Hebrew, it's Adam. It's, it's Adam. Okay, so again, verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused... For the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, woman, man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother Hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, jumping right down to the bottom of page 20, which is where we ended last time, number five, what are some things that we learn about marriage from Genesis 1, and this passage Genesis 2, before the fall, and again, we're not saying all there is to say about marriage, this isn't a marriage conference per se, but trying to have the mental furniture, the theological furniture in our minds to understand God's good purposes of why he made what he made. So here's some things to observe from the text. There is a creational order and roles in marriage that are instituted before the fall. So let's go through this and then we can talk about it and take some questions. So if we just observe from the text that I just read, Adam was created first as the covenant head of creation. That's important language. And the reason it's important, but I'm not going to defend it, is I defended it before when we looked at Genesis 1 and creation. So he's a covenant head. Or if you've read any books, Bible books or theology books, sometimes you'll hear federal head. And the word federal means covenant. It's just an old word for covenant. And it's a bit confusing, but that's what it is. So we see that Adam was created first. 
as the head of creation. And Adam, we are going to discover, is ultimately held accountable for the fall in Genesis. So when we get to Genesis 3, we're going to discover that God primarily holds Adam to blame and Adam responsible for Eve being seduced and tricked by the enemy. The logic of the gospel, by the way, that we've seen week in and week out, is that what we don't need is another Eve, but we need another Adam. And we've talked a lot about, especially if you're here on Sundays, the past few Sundays we've spent with Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the trials, and we've seen that Jesus deliberately went to a garden to reenact Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, where Jesus is in the place of the last Adam. So that's an important, important piece. The logic of the gospel doesn't tell us that we need a new mother, as the Roman Catholic Church does, with a, e, a, a Mariology, and Mary is the new Eve. We reject that. It's not biblical. We need a new Adam. That's kind of jumping ahead. We'll get to that more when we get to the gospel's effect on marriage. Uh, B, Adam, we read in the text, not Eve, was charged to name all the creatures. And if you noticed... Adam first named her woman, we saw that in 2.23, and then we're going to see in 3.20 that Adam renames Eve, Eve, after the fall. So really, before the fall, her name was Isha. And then after the fall, when Adam names her Eve, it's actually evidence that Adam was saved, because Eve is a play on the word for basically life giver. And when Adam heard God give the first promise of the gospel, that a savior would be born from the woman, he renamed her life giver. So I think that's a show of Adam's faith. So Adam is in heaven. But anyways, that's extra credit. It's not in your notes. And then you'll notice at the bottom of the page, it says Eve never names Adam. She does not rename Adam. And she doesn't rename anybody except, except she names Seth Seth in 425, and we'll get there, and I think that's also a symbol of Eve's faith in the gospel, and so she is saved also. But the point is, is we are focusing on this reality that before the fall, God instituted a creational order, made Adam, and there was some delay that gave enough time for Adam to name um, the animals before speciation occurred, to name dog, dog, and wildebeest, wildebeest, or whatever. And Eve didn't have any naming responsibilities. Okay, keep going, and we'll circle back to us with some questions. Eve, we see in the text, was created for Adam. God did not create them simultaneously. He could have, right? So we did some hypotheticals last time. God hypothetically didn't need to invent marriage. He could have just invented group polyamory, There was no such thing as marriage, and everybody was just basically married to everybody. He didn't do that. He could have invented polygamous marriages, the like. He didn't do that. It was man and woman. And what we see also is that he made Adam, and Adam named in the role of God. Eve didn't do that. Eve was created for Adam. God did not create them simultaneously, nor in the reverse order. Eve is designated by God as Adam's helper not vice versa. Yet, they fit and correspond to one another. And it's important to note 
that God calls himself a helper in scripture. It's an exalted title of God himself. Um, and so it's not a helper. And I'm, what I'm getting towards is I'm going to begin to address the idea of feminism and what's been baked into each of our souls. And the younger you are, the more fierce it is. And if you're a woman, it's exceptionally baked into your soul in our culture. And it's embedded that everything that I'm saying here is misogynistic, patriarchal, repressive, and whatever word you can think of, that this is, that this is hate speech. And so I'm trying to make an argument that this is actually good speech. It's love speech and it's life-giving speech. So, that, so that's where we're going to provoke you a little bit. Nonetheless, letter D, both Adam and Eve, we saw this in Genesis 1, are equally the image and likeness of God. Adam is not more like God than Eve or vice versa. And so that's an important piece to never lose, and it's never been lost in God's plan, that men and women equally, equally of the same amount, dignity, value, worth as image bearers of God. And so that means then when God gifts roles to Adam and Eve before the fall, that's what they are, gifts for his creational order to function. And we'll, we'll get deeper into that. So nonetheless, both are equally in the image and likeness of God. Both are equal in dignity. Oh, I just said that. Neither superior to the other, yet their individual strengths and weaknesses complement each other. Men are masculine. Uh, women are feminine. There is a spectrum in the best sense of that word for both. And that's a complement by God for marriage and more. All these realities that we're just going over so quickly were created by God before the fall and designated very good by him. And that's very important. God stamped very good on those roles. And I think many who are even raised in the church, certainly not just culture, but even among uh, a number of Christian circles, this notion of roles in marriage is rejected even among Christians as not very good and there's no attention that's given any credence when they look at Genesis 1 or 2 but but let's keep going letter F Genesis 3 and 4 and we're going to see that soon if this is just a peek ahead reveal that the created order and roles of marriage were frustrated by sin but not removed by sin or created by sin Again, even among many Christians, they think that roles in marriage are a product of the curse. And therefore, they'll say that since we're saved in Jesus, there's no more roles. That's false. That's a bad reading of scripture. Um, and usually what happens is that there's an appeal to, to Galatians, I think, 3, where it says that there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, uh, etc. in that passage. That's talking about salvation. It's not talking about roles in marriage. It's talking about that regardless of your gender, regardless of your economic status or your ethnicity, Jesus is the savior of all. It has no commentary on marriage. That's a key text for people who argue that roles in marriage are removed. But we'll get there. So F1 there, our egalitarian, um, egalitarian, if you've ever heard that word before, raise your hand. Okay. Who wants me to put on the spot to define it? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, think equalitarian. 
like vegetarian but equalitarian. I don't know. Uh, just uh, egalitarian is the idea that um, any form of hierarchy, authority structure, or role is inherently bad. And therefore, everybody needs to be equal. And that's what egalitarian means. And within Christian theological circles, there's something called egalitarianism, which is contrasted with complementarianism. And complement, you're welcome. I'm just going to say in advance, you're welcome for all these words, saying all these isms. Complementarianism, we complement hand and glove. That's the view that the Bible espouses, that men and women are equal, dignity, value, and worth before the Lord, but we complement each other uh, physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally. We're not the same. Egalitarian is same, same, same. Our egalitarian Western worldviews, any conception of order and roles as a moral evil that is repressive, misogynistic, patriarchal, that must be overthrown. Case in point, think of the automatic revulsion to the word submission. Even Sam's eyebrows just raised. I mean, how often does the word submission just, is it said with a smile on the lips? So case in point, think of the automatic revulsion to the word of submission and the assumption that if you say that, it means second-class citizen, slave, inferior, demeaned, etc. The sad and bitter irony of the various forms and waves of feminism and LGBTQ plus is that the offered counter to the biblical view, and, and this, pause, well, just, this is important to get, is the different waves of feminism and the different now waves of LGBTQ+, where now it's all about transgenderism and more, and non-binary, is that th those, those systems of belief, feminism and LGBTQ+, they don't offer a new third option to the biblical worldview. But they offer, what they say is that women or those who identify as women, I suppose, should find their dignity and value in breaking free from the slavery and shackles of the home, repudiating submission to her husband, she doesn't really need one anyway, and doing what a man does in terms of work in the world, but only in power positions. CEOs, politicians, professors, and managers. I have not seen very many garbage women driving down the street or um, tradesmen. There, there are some, but not many. So that's why I'm going to say it's a sad and bitter irony because what's the alternative to the biblical worldview? It's simply that women should do what men do and be like men and have the opportunities of men and that the home and the things that only women can do in terms of giving birth and having babies is, is seen as a nuisance blip or a setback to career goals and more more so the question is is that god's view but that's what the view is of feminism and lgbtq plus and more what's the consequence and we'll get more into this but this is just kind of a preview what's the consequence then 
with the, these views, our egalitarian Western world and the waves of feminism and more. The consequence, 3A, is the death of society. The natural consequence, if men aren't men and women aren't women and the home is devalued and childbearing is a nuisance or an option not to pursue, the death of society. Pets and pay become more important than marriage or children. Marriage is a creational institution and ordinance. This means it is God's intention for all people of all places, not just Christians, to be married. God has both hardwired physically and softwired practical creational benefits in marriage regardless of your belief. So the more an unbeliever walks in unintentional obedience to God's purposes in marriage, the more likely they will experience his, quote, common grace, not his saving covenantal special grace. And while this point doesn't need to be supported by social sciences, consider looking up, just Google it, all the statistics regarding mental health, productivity, well-being, uh, uh, physical health, stability, benefits to children, to husbands and wives and men and women, etc., that are bound up in a married, stable, functional home, even for unbelievers. Even for unbelievers. Fo homes that function with traditional roles, even though they wouldn't call them traditional roles. We'll get to Ephesians 5 in a little bit. So this was a shotgun survey, and we're going to circle back to some of these concepts. So this is kind of a first pass, we'll take a second pass. But up to this point, any questions or clarifications on looking at Genesis 2 before the fall and what we observe from the text in terms of the creational order and roles and any questions about the, the contrast about our current cultural moment and those things. Okay, page 23, this will be a little bit repetitive and additional. So what I have in mind here is we haven't gone to Genesis 3 yet, but this is a summary of why God instituted, and that's a very important word. Certainly God created marriage, but he also instituted marriage, and so we're going to circle back to that. So there is, if you scan through, I think I've got... Eight, uh, eight summary points, and then there's these sub-conversation pieces as we go through it. So I'm going to go through this section. If you have an, a question, just mark it by where you want. We can go back and catch it afterwards, okay? So here's the summary, big idea summary of why God instituted marriage. Number one, marriage is invented and instituted by God. He alone has authority to define and design the institution of marriage. Define and design. So God is not authorized. God has not authorized any person or group of persons to redefine or redesign marriage in any way. This is another way of saying that Quote, marriage equals biblical marriage. The, the word itself derived from the Bible 
as one biological man and one biological woman, ideally united for life. There is no alternative that God recognizes, authorizes, or approves. Anything that calls itself marriage that does not conform to the biblical standard of one heterosexual, biological, male and female is not and cannot be marriage. It could be something else, whatever people invent they want to call it, but we're using Bible language to define, define it. And this is, I think that you might be able to see where we're going with this, but we'll get there. Institution is a key word. Here's why. Biblically, an institution is an authority structure whose purposes and jurisdiction is defined and designed by God. So those those are carefully chosen words. It's kind of technical, but this is, uh, it's amazing to understand. So God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all things and he makes Adam. It was not good that Adam should be alone. So he makes Eve and God presides over their marriage and they become one flesh. And that's the institution of marriage. But again, an institution is an authority structure. That means that God, who possesses all authority, gives permission to different institutions, and we'll get to them, different institutions kind of saying, here's your playing field. Here's the rules of the game. I, the Lord, here's what I expect from you in this institution. And there's boundaries that you're not supposed to step over, but there's a field that you play on. This is your sport. Play that sport. And so marriage is an institution. There's an authority structure. Husband is head of the marriage and wife and more. And there's there's responsibilities that we'll see more of, covenantal responsibilities between a husband and wife. We'll get into that language. And so it's an authority structure. And that word jurisdiction, right? So the uh, Flagstaff police has a jurisdiction. The, the sheriff's department has a jurisdiction, a realm, a, a certain boundaries. You go onto the reservation, that's its own jurisdiction. There's jurisdiction. So marriage has a jurisdiction. God has four key authority structures, four key institutions. Remember, all authority is delegated from Christ. Can anybody quote Matthew 28, 18? Just shout it out. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me says Jesus, go therefore, and, and on he goes. So Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and earth, and he gives his authority away. No institution has exhaustive authority, only Jesus does. And no institution has exhaustive authority over another. Rather, each has its own lane or own jurisdiction or own sphere or own playing field of authority and responsibility, But these spheres overlap and interrelate, like a Venn diagram. You guys seen a Venn diagram? It's like when you draw a circle. Where's Pastor Andy? He's on vacation. 
Ask, ask Pastor Andy to see his Venn diagram tattoo. <laughs> tell him I said that. Okay, so a Venn diagram, tell him Bo said it. A Venn diagram is overlapping circles, overlapping circles. The spheres are not permitted by God to overlap, or excuse me, to overstep. They do overlap or be derelict of their respect, respective duties. The spheres are not permitted by God to overstep their bounds. So a husband is the husband of his one wife. He's not the husband of other wives. He's not the authority of other women. He would overstep if he thought that he could have authority in that regard, for example. So what are the four institutions God has instituted? The first one, Self-government. This is your conscience. Think the fruit of self-control. The second, which is what we're talking about here, is the institution of marriage. Third is the institution of the church, symbolized by the keys of the kingdom. And fourth is the institution of government, symbolized by the sword in Romans 13. And then some people would argue there's a, a fifth sphere or multiple spheres of, of society, and that's medicine, education, economics, arts, industry, etc. Okay. We're putting that, we're going to let that cement, that concrete's going to sit for a few minutes. We're going to circle back to it, okay? The institutions, there's four of them, they have boundaries and spheres. And any just questions on that, Diane, ask away. Question, or uh, Mike's coming. So have we, okay. have we um, as the church given, like the God designed marriage and then, but then when people get married, we go to a government authority to get that license? Like have we abdicated our responsibility as having jurisdiction over marriage the church rather than the government yes there's needs to be a little bit of nuance to that statement to some degrees there's there's um well we're going to circle back to that very quick like in the next point okay so we'll so hold, hold on to that question then maybe we can talk a little bit about that because that's a really important question we all need to think about any other questions about just the complex words of institution, jurisdiction, and sphere? If it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't make sense to anybody else, even me. So you have to ask a question. Okay. Clear as mud. We'll see if it can get a little bit clear as we move forward. So, plural marriage, homosexual marriage, and any other type of marriage people can invent or governments legislate are not only not accepted by God, but they are rejected by God and judged by God as sin and rebellion to his created order. They are, any other marriage and biblical marriage, evidence of high-handed rebellion to and rejection of God. As such, a Christian cannot support, endorse, celebrate any form of unbiblical marriage. 
when voting for political parties and candidates, it's the Christian duty to factor in their stance and support of biblical marriage or not, as it is with gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and the like. Did any of you, uh, I put it in my newsletter last week, and I'm assuming no, so if you raise your hand, I'll be surprised. Did any of you listen to, I put in a link to the uh, conversation between Albert Moeller, Carl Truman, and another guy? Anybody listen to that? Bo did, Martha did. Okay, so there, good job, gold, gold star, you guys. So there was a comment towards the end that was very fascinating when I'm making this passing comment on voting. Carl Truman noted that for almost the known existence of our two main political parties, the main division point between them has been economics. That's a primary key difference between the two. And this theologian, Carl Truman, noted that in, almost in the blink of an eye, in, since 2020, in the past three, four years, what we're now seeing is almost an instantaneous shift where the main difference between our political parties is no longer economics, but anthropology. What it means to be human, gender, sexuality, marriage, and more. And so when you begin to look at the platforms of different candidates or any candidate, you need to see what is their anthropology. Is it a biblical anthropology or an unbiblical anthropology? And I'm arguing that it's Christian duty to factor that in when we cast our decision for whatever candidate you vote for. So we're going to So this this first point was this. Marriage is invented and instituted by God. He alone has authority to define and design the institution, institution of marriage. No one else does. Next, marriage, we see, is a pre-fall, creational, covenantal good. God invented marriage before the fall, so it's not a product of the fall. It's a good it's creational, it's part of how we are made and why we have the biology and physiology that we do as male and female, and it's a covenantal good, and we'll circle back to that word covenantal. So the very first institution made by God was marriage. It's a pre-fall very good. Marriage is covenantal. Malachi 2.14 says, but you say, that, so God, God, context, God's rebuking the people of Israel through the prophet Malachi. And he does so in this short little book with rhetorical questions. But you say this, but here's what God says. But you say this, but here's what God says. So right in the middle of it says, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant is an extremely important word in the Bible. A covenant is an oath-bound relationship, typically with blessings and curses, that usually creates a familial relationship. It creates a family when one did not previously exist. Because marriage is covenantal, 
It is unlike and supersedes any other human relationship. Marriage takes precedent over kin relationships of your parents, right, leave and cleave, of siblings and even your own biological children. Children leave the nest, but marriage remains. So marriage is covenantal. It is the first institution. It is a pre-fall creational covenantal good. And by creational, that means that God expects um, non-Christians to get married. That's part of what that's, that means there. As we move forward, any questions in this second thing that we learn about marriage? Pre-fall good, it's creational for everybody, and it's a covenant till death do us part. Yeah, Jacob. Jacob, then Sam, then Martha. I was wondering, uh, just because you were saying... Hello? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just wondering, uh, because you were talking about how when we have a corrupted view of marriage, that it in itself is not actually marriage, and the rejection of God, and the rejection of that institution, something like homosexual or plurality marriage, I was wondering, does that apply to the other forms of institutions that you're talking about, like government, like say if there is a truly corrupt government in that way, could one make that same argument, or do we look at it like Romans when it's talking, like 14 or whatever, when it's talking about how God puts all leaders? That's a really good question, because you're getting into the question of um, a political theology and Christian resistance theory. Can't go into all of that right now. But what I can say is wherever there are sinners, there's sin. And just because you have sinners bound together, uh, two, sinner, two sinners don't make a perfect marriage. But in Christ, and armed with his gospel, a marriage can become increasingly more like Christ in a good. And um, that uh, with government, there is no perfect government except for Christ's government. But there are governments that are better than others. And in this broad sweep of human history, and the rise and fall of empires and kings and more, um, we see a progression of getting better at designing our constitution, um, for example, in America and more, that is good. It's the best so far. But we're not anarchists. Romans 13 is still in the Bible. Yeah, sorry. We'll get there. Good question. Sam. So I've always wondered this. There's in Genesis chapter 2 says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then from Matthew 19 or 19.5 or Matthew 5, Jesus goes on to clarify. He says, therefore, what God is doing together, let man not separate. So what is the one flesh union? Like, speaking about covenants and stuff, is it just merely physical? Like, a baby happens? Or is there something more than just a physical act? Yeah, that's a good question. So... The, the next section that we're going to get into after this is on sex. So let's see. We we'll probably need to get more chairs in here. See how many people start just showing up because we're going to have sex talks. 
So you have to be careful. So in all of these things, like, so again, we're talking about marriage, and I, I don't want to do death by qualifications, but God gifts certain people with singleness. And we know that God opens and closes the womb. So if you desire to get married, but you're not married, that's not sin. We're trusting God's providence. I mean, we have to, you know, get into some details and things like that. But so same thing when you get into marriage. So the sexual act is the consummation of the marriage in God's sight in a covenant union. What I'm not saying then is that if someone is, is sexually promiscuous outside of marriage, that they have seven wives or, you know, making stuff up. But there, there seem to be signs tied with covenants. That there are. So, for example, well, let me say this differently. The symbol of government is a sword in the hands of the government. The symbol of a church is keys in its hands. And while the Bible is not explicit, Dave thinks, this is just me, I think that the sexual union is a symbol, it's like a recovenant ceremony between a husband and wife. That's one of the reasons, but there's um, physiological reasons that people may not be able to physically consummate a marriage. So what I don't want to say, tread very carefully, not to say that if, if there's a sexless marriage, all things being equal, or whatever it is, that that's necessarily sin. Or if someone can't consummate, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it seems like um, it's the physical act. But way back last semester, when we talked about how we are material and immaterial, we shouldn't be Gnostics who separate the hardware and the software. So when you engage in a physical sexual act, you are necessarily engaging in a spiritual act, sharing heart, soul, mind, and strength, so to speak, with another person. And that, that's why it's such a uniquely devastating sin, both if it's impacted against us or uh, to others, or even just happily done outside the context of marriage, it will always have... Um, bad fruit. And if a child comes from that union, it's not the child's fault. That child is still a blessing from the Lord. Complicated question. Good question. Thank you. Martha. So what does constitute a marriage? Is there a ceremony? Because like on the Navajo reservation, the, the people a generation or two or three or four ago were told they were not married because they weren't okayed by the state. They didn't do it in a church, but they had a ceremony and they were committed for life. But uh, there's no record in Genesis of a ceremony. So what does constitute a marriage? Great question. So there, there, here's, here's what we, um, uh, Two, two ways to answer that question, that combine. Number one, the only marriage in the Bible that doesn't have additional, witness, additional human witnesses there is Adam and Eve's marriage. But it's God himself who, pr who presides over that as the officiant of the marriage. Every other marriage across the entire Bible, the community is present. And... Um, before the Mosaic Covenant, you had two families present. So you just, you have, there, there has to be witnesses. 
Because in the Bible, covenants are made with witnesses. Um, and the different covenants have different witnesses. So you have that piece. So that kind of sends a generic template that there needs to be, like, so ladies, if the guy says to you, it's okay, we're married in God's eyes, he's lying to you. And don't follow him into sin. Because you're not married in God's eyes. That's just an excuse to sin. There needs to be um, some type of officiant and some type of audience. And the fact that it's a creational reality means that different people groups will, will, uh, will uh, build different traditions around that marriage that aren't necessarily wrong. I suppose we'd have to see what this tribe's traditions are and compare it with scripture and say, okay, that's not okay. Um, right? I mean, in the olden days, someone used to sit in the room and watch to make sure the marriage was consummated. Uh, not really interested in that. But I think that's what happened when Martin Luther married his wife. So there's weird stuff from my perspective. So you should hear that there's principles and then there's flexibility. Does that kind of make sense? And um, we, well, we'll get to the state in a little bit. Jennifer, do you have a question? Martha, did that, was that somewhat helpful? It sounds like what they were told on the res was really bad. Um, well, my question came up when Sam was asking about, you know, the one flesh and is it, you know, just the sexual act. So, and I, and I mentioned this in the Sunday school class that we, that we had about marriage. Um, well, why don't we mention the godly offspring that God is seeking by making them one? You know, verse 15, the next verse. Yeah, we'll um, get there. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I just never really hear that as, hey, here's a purpose for marriage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's a softball. Thank you. It's coming. Okay. It's coming, sister. Okay. It's coming. Number three. Oh, yeah, wait, yep. Is that Catherine? Yes. <laughs> you, may, <clears throat> you might be going to cover this, but this is just a curiosity question. So if someone who is a polygamist comes to Christ, who are they married to? He can't be an elder. Okay. And ask Scott and Bo to figure that out. <laughs> okay. Actually, no, Jeff's the new elder. Just have Jeff figure it out. That is, so, but that, so that's, one, that is a real question in the mission field right now. And two, that is a question that we will, as a church, most likely face in the coming decades. Yeah, Bill. Uh, we just talked in our, so Kubali, right? Kubali Condit. There are men in her church who have, there's one man in their church that is a godly man. She believes he's a regenerate Christian and he has more than one wife. So can he be a pastor elder? No. And so they're trying to, what do you do, right? It's a great question. And that might be something we do here, but that actually is happening with one of our missionaries now. But uh, let, me, let me follow up before you follow up. So, but apply that same question to a so-called homosexual marriage or any type of LGBTQ 
plus polyamory or anything like that. No, that is not marriage in God's sides to begin with, so it's not a divorce to start with because it was never a marriage. Um, in a sentence. So, again, just curiosity. So, we have the Genesis and we have the Matthew where it says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, you know, cleave to his wife. Is polygamy strictly forbidden in Scripture? Because we see it throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Is it strictly forbidden? Yes. Okay. Well, I, what I say it's don't strictly forbidden. I, 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 <laughs> I don't want to be a sister wife. Don't get any wrong ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Kenny? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, so one of the effects that we see in Genesis 4 of sin on marriage is polygamy. Uh, Lamech, not the good one, but the bad one, takes two wives, kills a young guy, and boasts about it. And so that's a narrative that's passing, but you recognize that does not seem right. Because he just did what Cain did to Abel, but now he also has multiple wives, and Adam only had one. And so that's, that's a tutor to teach us that polygamy is, is sin. Now, uh, you know, uh, David had multiple wives, right? So what, what do you, that's, he was in sin. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, a king shall not multiply wives to himself. So uh, it was sin. It was wrong. I love prefacing a question with sorry. <laughs> Sam, go ahead. There's your mic. So in a polygamous relationship, are, is everyone involved in that polygamous relationship one flesh? I don't think so. Because, I mean, elsewhere it says if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you're one with them in flesh, right? Okay, then maybe yes. <laughs> 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 so what I'm trying to get at here is... is, is it seems like the institution of God, because this is what God is doing together, let man not separate. Don't think that God would say, go unite with a prostitute, unless you're Hosea. Um, but then, you know, was she married or not married? Was she just a promiscuous woman, right? We don't know. Um, but I, it seems to be that there's something more to the marriage covenant, like you said earlier, it's a covenant there, than just the physical act, you know? So like trying to kind of figure that out and what that is because I don't know it, it has to be more than the physical act but it can't be less than that but it has to be more because if someone so does that mean a paraplegic can't be married because they can't perform the act a paraplegic man and it, it doesn't right so he can still be married in God's eyes so that's right. what I'm saying that there's there's got to be more nuance there but scripture does not get this is where we're getting to the realm of a speculative theology of, of what exactly is involved in it so certainly it involves the union of a man and woman and then to peek ahead of Jennifer's point, um, the heart's desire ought to be to bear children, but scripture repeatedly says God opens and closes the womb. So if we're going to say that childbirth is a necessary byproduct of the union, I would say that would be unbiblical because we would say people who, who are uh, infertile or something like that wouldn't be married. But the vast majority of people of human existence of all times and all places are able to have sex and able to have kids. And so it kind of becomes a normal part of it. But we'll get there more. Yes, Genevieve. Yeah. 
if it's covenantal, when you get married, you're, you're not supposed to divorce, but a lot of people, including me, got divorced. And a lot of people remarried. Yeah, big question. All I want to say about that now is Jesus said that God permitted divorce, but it was because of what he says to the Jews, because of the hardness of your heart. And um, that would involve, so hardness of heart would mean a lack of forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, and more. So uh, bigger question that we could talk a little bit more off, offline. That's going to take us far afield, but very good question. So this is going deep <laughs> with, the, with the, the covenant, right, and the, and the consummation. So maybe take a stab at explaining the one flesh union, which is the consummation of one man and one woman, consummating their love, becoming one flesh. And so if we are the bride of Christ and he has gone to prepare a place for us, um, have we yet consummated with Christ our King as his bride, the church? And is that going to come? And so is the parallel that's spoken of in Ephesians chapter 5 of the one flesh union, is that uh, showing us the covenantal union and the consummation union of us being received by our, our groom Christ as the church? The answer, the short answer is yes. We're, we're, when we get into these things, we'll hear it. So, so yes, we'll get there. So I know it's a big yeah, question, okay, but I'm just saying because along those lines of that, you know, Paul speaks of that mystery in Ephesians 5, and I believe there's, there's a significant parallel there. Um, and so that keeps us from getting in the weeds of the all of the stuff that we're talking about this yeah when when is it yeah can you get a tattoo ring yes all the different things we so okay uh here's the next let's just move forward number three what what do we learn from the first few chapters of genesis marriage is a pre-political institution so diane's question some other questions now here is an argument that needs nuance. Number one, governments, here's what they're supposed to do. Romans 13 says that the government is God's deacon for your good. And I mentioned earlier about the overlapping circles, the institutions. So you have church, you have marriage, and you have state. And the circles overlap in the sense that if a husband is harming his household, the church can step in, let's say he professes to be a believer, and our duty would be to discipline him if he's unrepentant. And if there was also illegal harm, the state has the duty before the Lord to step in and to put him in jail. That's in a sense where there's an overlap. But the point we're driving to is because it's a pre-political institution, government does not have the authority from God over the institution of marriage or in the institution of marriage or any jurisdiction around marriage. But it can be argued, and there's debate, so I'm just going to say this. You can make a biblical argument that because this government exists for your good, it could benefit the government to put perks in for biblical marriage to promote that for the sake of society. 
That's a, de that's a debatable statement, but I'm saying that that text could be used to make that argument so that it safeguards um, or rather promotes marriage rather than demotes marriage, which, which actually, if you are a student of the changing of laws over the uh, uh, centuries of our state, of our, of our country, or other Western countries that had laws that outlawed premarital sex and things along those lines, all those laws have been removed and more, sexual revolution, and now it's all just do what you want and there's no sanctity of marriage, and, and we'll get to this when we get to the household, that's why society falls apart. It's a chief factor for society falling apart because it's no longer walking in what God requires. So marriage and government are separate spheres and jurisdictions. So let me say it again. The government cannot create marriage and dictate marriage. That is an overstepping of the jurisdiction that God has given to governments. And so when they do, they're defying God and will incur his judgment. So when we see all of you, we mentioned this last week, but part of the politicization of all the LGBTQ+, feminism, and more, those ideologies, is if you can get uh, what was once outlawed legalized, the state is your God, and the state, if the state authorizes it as a good, then you could no longer say, I'm bad. Does that make sense? If, if the Supreme Court invents, which it doesn't have authority to, Obergefell into homosexual marriage as a legal right, that was illegal for them to do that, but if when but they did that, that now in the eyes of people who want to have same-sex marriage can say, I'm justified in the eyes of the law, and you are repressive or illegal by not supporting it more. Do you see that? So that's where if, you, if God is not your God, the state becomes your God, and you appeal to the state in order to legislate what you want, because if the state says it's okay, then it must be okay because the state's better than God. Questions on that? Really important to understand that, that concept. Yeah, Jacob. So I guess kind of similarly, um, with the idea of like that government can't impose on marriage because they're separate institutions, would you say that is therefore how it would work with all those four institutions you're talking about? Like government cannot impose on the church, church cannot impose on marriage, marriage cannot impose on self-government? Um, the self-government and the marriage piece gets a little bit different. So uh, a spouse can't override your conscience, but 1 Corinthians 7 says that your body belongs to your spouse. So there's a little bit of a dance that needs some nuance. Let's talk about that when we talk about sex. But the different institutions have their own spheres, again, that they overlap. So there's gonna be times that they speak into each other, but there are boundaries that they cannot supersede. So um, the state does not create the church, the church does not create the state, but the church can talk to the state and more. And then the church instructs husbands and wives and children and more. 
So the, the church proclaims God's word. So if the city council is sitting here and parents and kids are sitting here and businessmen are sitting here and businesswomen and the word of God instructs all of us to then go back to our spheres and live faithfully in those spheres. Good question. Yes, Catherine. Um, to what you were saying about legislation um, sort of giving value or make, making something good. So if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, to follow that logic then would be to say that the Emancipation Proclamation is what gave non-white people their worth and dignity and human value rather than it is inherently in them because they are human beings. Is that what you're saying? I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what you're saying. No, let me, sorry, let me start over. Let me start over. Because you're saying that because the Supreme Court said homosexual marriage is now valid. Yeah. Their, their logic is the state said it, therefore, okay, now it's, it's real, it has value. So would that mean then to follow the logic, that logic to its end, you would have to say the Emancipation Proclamation is what gave people their worth and value rather than they just already had it. And the Emancipation Proclamation was simply an acknowledgement of that. Um, I don't think so. Let me, let me nuance it. I may not understand your question, but let me say it this way. A, I think that a government has to make laws that adhere to the truths of Scripture. A, let me say this, the negative. A government cannot create laws that are against God's law. So the Emancipation Proclamation would have been in keeping with what God's word says right. regarding the dignity and value of any human being regarding of, uh, of skin color or, or anything. So that was simply the government doing its right duty before the Lord and, and stopping what it stopped. Whereas Obergefell was the government overstepping its bounds and creating an anti-law, meaning it's an anti-law against God's law, making something that God forbids. That makes sense. I wasn't disagreeing with you. Okay. I was just wondering, yeah. for the people who would say, Obergefell, you know, it, it made this right. Yeah. If you were going to have a conversation with them, would that be a logical way to point out the fallacy of that? To say, well, okay, if you're going to say that, then you have to say that the Emancipation Proclamation is what gave people their value rather than they already had value. Right, and that's where I would say that the state simply recognized what the Bible had already given them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you could say... Yeah, so when the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, that was the right, that was a decision that was in keeping with God's word, whereas Roe v. Wade, when it was enacted, was against God's word. And so it was an unjust law, which is no law. And, but we're getting into Christian resistance theory. One, one last question, two last questions, and we gotta move forward. We'll cut two pages tonight. Okay, so is there like a hierarchy kind of between the different spheres, like the church is over the government or marriage is over the church, or are they all kind of like on the same playing field? You can, on the one hand, 
children, so, so scripture is, is children obey your parents, uh, wives submit to your husbands, church members submit to pastor elders, and all citizens submit to the government. So that seems to create a hierarchy. But it, I think it would be biblically wrong to think it's a matter of jurisdiction and responsibility. So the government's there that if, if a nine-foot guy walks in here with a bunch of guns, um, I don't know why being nine feet tall helps with the guns. If a, if a big bad guy comes in and we just are not strong enough to defeat him, we need the government to step in and stop him as part of the enforcement of justice, right? So there's elements where they can step in, but, but the government is not over the church, and it's not over households. So there's some kind of, they're all overlaid on each other with just different responsibilities. Good question. Jeff. So kind of a follow-up to Diane's question is, the, you, you know, the government can come in and support something that's biblical, like, with, like historically they did with marriage. But when we give that, when we give them that authority over something that God ordained, then they have, then they can change it, right? And so you think, so that's all, you know, water under the bridge now. Uh, it's too late. But and then we think about in the future, like should there's things we should guard against giving to the government because then they can change it later. Like, um, or like for example, I mean, we're a 501c3 organization, but if they started to legislate us based on that, we could pull out of that. But you know, I mean, there's things like. Um, I just, it's just something that like, hindsight, should there be things that the church should be careful not to give, give to the government to the point that we have control over that. So, cause then they can, then they can change it later. Right. They I take ownership so. of it. You're absolutely right. I think so. I mean, it's, I, I don't think that it's sin that we have like an exit sign right there so that you know how to get out of the building and there's some building codes and things like that. Um, that, that's. It's, that's where you start getting into a matter of prudence, but you're absolutely right, because when you give something to any government, they don't give it back, and you begin to, uh, you begin to lose jurisdiction. Good observation. Moving forward fast. Number four. Again, so what are we doing? We're summarizing Genesis 1 and 2, sneaking into a little bit of Genesis 3. We also discover that marriage is designed to image the oneness and fellowship of the Trinity. So we talked about this, but again, what does that mean? Two become one, and normally a third is produced, a child. And from a, from a fairly distant distance, you can see that God always existed as one God in three persons, perfectly content and happy and glorious within himself. He had no need to create. And the way that God relates within himself, his intra-Trinitarian operations, is Father, Son, and Spirit. You have a family structure built into the Trinity. So in some distant way, you can see God's design of having a man and a woman who in their covenantal union of marriage produce a third and then perhaps more. So any form of unbiblical marriage cannot image the Trinitarian reality. God designed the union and oneness of one man and one woman to produce a child to reflect him. So a, uh, someone could argue, well, a thruple, that's better. It's three people. This is a form of polyamory. 
So a thruple can uh, image God, right? Three. But a thruple cannot image God, not only because it's a fundamental rejection of God's word, but it's condemned as a way of the seed of the serpent in Genesis 4, which we'll get to, in this case with Lamech married to two wives. Next, marriage is ultimately designed to image the gospel of Jesus Christ, his self-sacrificial and redemptive love for his bride, the church, and the church's devotion, submission, and worship of her Lord. We'll get into roles, but that's why roles exist. And Bo mentioned Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 shows that roles in marriage are redeemed in Jesus, and that when anyone looks at your marriage, your future marriage, um, or any marriage that you look at, you should be able to look at the husband and get a better sense of what Jesus is like by the way that he loves and treats and honors and dwells with his wife. And you should get a better sense of what the church is like in relation to Jesus as you see how she responds, respects, and submits to him. It's, it's built into it. And so the, and it's kind of, this shouldn't be number five. It should either be number one or last. This is the ultimate reason. What is the reason of all the reasons God invented marriage? To prepare us for the gospel. There's other reasons, but this is the ultimate. Everything else is penultimate, right next to it. So that means an unbiblical marriage inherently preaches a false gospel as it cannot image the exclusive Christ and his bride covenant union aspects of the gospel. It's really important to, to, to not brush over that and just make sure that that sticks with you. That's why God forbids other types of sexual expressions in the Bible outside of covenant marriage. Because even a guy and a girl who hook up, their, their sexual relationship itself is preaching a false gospel. It's saying that you can... Um, do the act of a covenantal union without actually being in covenant with God or one another, notwithstanding the verse that you mentioned earlier, Sam. Marriage is designed to image God's continued creational purposes in production and reproduction. Production is the dominion side of things, cultivate the fruitfulness, and reproduction is having babies. That's to multiply. So Jennifer, here we are at that, this next point. Marriage is the primary but not sole context for the creation commission. The reason I... So remember, creation commission, fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth, exercise dominion. The reason I say it's primary but not sole is I want to include the opportunity for adoption in there. We've talked about this before, but just it bears repeating. So if a couple, whether or not they can have kids, when a couple adopts a child... That is a highly, highly gospel-esque picture of what the Father has done through us through Jesus. And so you can have a couple who's not able to bear children, but they adopt, and they're participating in the creation commission. Does it mean that you have to adopt? No, it does not. But I just want to make that nuance. The creation commission is grounded in the realities of, the, of biblical marriage, not any other possible form of worldly marriage. So homosexual marriage, by definition, cannot be fruitful in God's eyes, or by his definition, a homosexual marriage cannot produce children. 
But now, in today's age, reproductive technologies and adoption in a homosexual context are illusions of God's plan for unbiblical marriages. Just because technology allows it doesn't mean it should happen. And this is another reason why God forbids these types of acts. Because the sexual union is meant for also procreation. So plural marriage is also an illusion of God's plan. Biblically, biblical ends never justify the means. Let me just do the last two points. I'll close this in prayer and then I'll stay for questions. Number seven. So here, this is more of an implication. A people who devalue and reject biblical marriage and all of God's designs associated with it, the previous six, have already sown the seeds of its own disintegration and death as a society. Marriages are the nucleus of society that lead to the atoms of households which build the body of civilization. Unbiblical marriages disintegrate society because men and women aren't being men and women and not producing children. Again, all things being equal. There's the gift of singleness. There is celibacy. There is infertility. I'm talking about the norms of way God designed things to work. Even unbelievers benefit from God's creational purposes in marriage. Again, because it's a creational ordinance, God intends unbelievers to marry, and even if they unintentionally, functionally walk in roles in the marriage and love their kids and treat each other well despite sin and more, that's going to be, it's going to have a benefit built into it because it's part of God's design. It's interesting to consider that Obergefell, the 2014-15 Supreme Court decision in favor, 5-4, of same-sex marriage has also been considered a formal turning point into the negative world in which Western culture is increasingly and openly hostile to a biblical worldview on personhood, gender, marriage, sexuality, children, home, life, and etc. Um, you can go to that link and you can read the dissenting opinions from the four justices who did not vote for it. Uh, and it, it, would just, it would be worth your time to read one or some of the dissenting voices of the Supreme Court of how they appealed to basically creational realities of why they did not support Obergefell. And then I use this, you can see this phrase negative world, and I put a link down there. There's an article I suggest that you read. But those of you who are old enough know that once Obergefell passed, it was almost like the very next day that Target and Disney and Coca-Cola, that's where in such a unique way we saw economics and consumerism marry the cultural moment and to ride that wave of being on the right side of liberal progress. And so now here we are seeing economic coercion, council culture, and more with restaurants and people who can beans and just all the ridiculous stuff of marrying economics and consumerism with progressive ideologies. And it was almost like overnight that that happened. So if, you, if you're not old enough to be familiar with that change, 
it's so close to early in your lifetime to recognize of how radical of a shift took place in our culture with that decision. And so this guy who writes, writes this article regarding the negative world, he talks about how basically from 2014 on, to be a Christian in the West is now viewed negatively by non-Christians for the most part. Because all that we stand for in terms of anthropology, personhood, is viewed as repressive, uh, unscientific, phobic, with all the phobics and more. And final point, a point to be repeated. The aggressive activist intimidation and coercion of the LGBT, LGBTQ+, pro-abortion, redefining a marriage, anti-God, secular, anti-revolution, <laughs> will implode and devour itself, ruining many lives and leave a wake of destruction. The gospel on the lips and in the hands of the church will be the only antidote and salve to broken people. While the Christian is duty-bound to love their neighbor by resisting this anti-revolution from the home to the voting booth, the bright side is that the gospel will prevail and Jesus will reign supreme on his throne of truth and grace. Father, we thank you for this time together and pray that you dismiss us with your blessing and also bless our continued conversation. In Jesus' name, amen.